This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, George the First. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alpha the Great to Elizabeth II. New dynasty. A new dynasty indeed, new beginnings. The mm. Germans are in town. Uh oh. Before we get to them, however, we've got uh, lots of lovely messages from people, so I thought I'd read some of these out. Cool. Firstly, some messages um, about our last episode, Queen Anne, the last of the Stuarts. Uh, Katie Micklethwaite um, put on Facebook a rhyme from the period, which is King William thinks all, Queen Mary talks all, Prince George drinks all, and Princess Anne eats all. Yeah, that was good. I saw that one. And uh, Matthew Constable noted on the 17 pregnancies that Mm. Anne had that no wonder her husband, Prince George, wanted a quiet lie down most of the time. Very true. Busy man. And uh, an interesting one from Heather Britton, who's saying, uh, do we know the cause of Anne's visual impairment? I grew up with a severe visual impairment, and when it was said that she had a superb memory, I wasn't surprised. There have been many studies about a link between low vision and blindness and a good memory. I suppose we get more practice. That's, yeah. If we recall, we also had a man, I love Alex, or woman, actually, I love Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, who yes. Who asked us if we get Alexander yeah. Hamilton. They've confirmed that uh, he is the greatest hero of the American Revolutionary War. We should have known about him. He wrote the Federalist Papers and was the first Secretary of the Treasury. Unlike other heroes of the Revolution, he didn't use slave labour. However, he says that uh, Rex Factor has given him a new hero, namely William Marshall. Yeah, absolutely. And he's considering changing his name to I Love William Marshall. <laughs> well, this guy's brilliant. I like his style. Alexander Hamilton also found he was uh, killed in a duel. Oh, cool. With the then Vice President. Really? Yes. That is Vice President. Colourful character. Mm. And we've also had some lovely praise for Rex Factor, a bit self-indulged, but nevertheless, thank you to all these people. Maxine uh, Eminger says that I take you to bed every night. Hello. Scandal. Uh, (laughs) But now get little sleep. I used to listen to podcasts to help me drift off, but now I'm laughing with my eyes closed. Nell Henry said, love, love, love the podcast. Keep it up, boys. I've been a long-time listener right when you guys started and never missed an episode. I party too much in school and never paid attention, but thank God those days are over, so thanks for making it fun to listen to and doing it in a clever way. That's kind of why I like these as well, Mm. because I just learned from you. This (laughs) is good. And Ross Langford said, hi, Rex Factotums. You'll hardly believe how much pleasure this podcast gives me while I drive through traffic in Melbourne. Thank you for the wit, the erudition, and the bringing to light of so many forgotten monarchs. I imagine them lined up on their thrones in monarch heaven, glowing with joy at having won the Rex Factor title, or thumping their scepters and orbs in anger at a loss. That's right, and I replied to him that you could imagine John eating some celestial carpet up there <laughs> yes, in his rage. <laughs> so, on to George I, mm. or indeed on to the Hanoverians, the Georgians. Um, a little bit of background, as this is a new dynasty, on who the Hanoverians are, where they come from, and why they are suddenly ruling yeah, yeah. Great Britain. Geographically, it's part of sort of northwest region of what is modern Germany. So it's sort of on the River Line or Lane, uh, which is between North German Plain and mountains of Lower Saxony. Because mm-hmm. these are principalities, Germany hasn't unified, has it? So. Yeah, exactly. Its history. It was founded uh, in 1635 by George, Duke of Brunswick, Lunenburg. 
Then his son, Duke Ernest August, was elevated to the status of an elector. So this was one of nine minor princes who got to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. Oh, okay, right. Which is that is where that name comes from, the elector? Yeah, so that's still going on. But And then his son is George right, I. Yeah. So that's how we get okay. that little line. So it's a relatively young mm. place. In terms of its link to England... 1700, when Anne's only son died, there were no more Stuarts left in the line of succession who were Protestant. So, 1701 Act of Settlement made the Hanovers the next in line, because they're the first available people who are Protestants and in the royal family. And there was some huge amount of people that had to go past... Over 50 Catholics who had a better claim to the throne that get passed over. That's asking for trouble and for uh, um, uprising. Isn't and it? of course, we've got the Jacobites, who are the sort of the Catholic oh, yeah, descendants of James II. Mm. Um, so this gets past Savoys, Whittlesbacks, Modernays families, mm. which are above the Hanovers. But nevertheless, Hanovers are Protestants, so they're at the top of the line. Their actual descent from the royal line, James I, sixth of Scotland, mm. so the first of the Stuarts, he had a daughter called Elizabeth, who married Frederick V of the Rhine. They had 13 children. The youngest daughter uh, was Sophia. She marries um, George, Duke of Brunswick-Lunenburg, and she is the one who is the next in line at the time of the Act of Settlement in 1701. So Sophia, Electress of Hanover, it's the one with the claim to the throne. Could this be said to be the most tenuous claim in history? Well, it's... I mean, if you think about it, she, Sophia of Hanover is the granddaughter of James I. OK. So it's not that... But there was just 13 ridiculous. of them, so it bumps up the numbers. But yeah. she was a, a... So there's only three generations. Yeah, yeah, so it's actually... You know, it's probably it's grandparents. It's not like third cousin six times removed. It's yeah, just that there true. are so many people more senior yeah. that have been oh, passed okay. over. So Sophia of Hanover is a very interesting character. She was 71 in 1701, when she became, in effect, the next in line. But she was very sprightly and healthy at this point, very intelligent woman, fluent in five languages, a friend and sponsor of the philosopher Leibniz. So she was heir presumptive for a whole decade, but she died a few weeks before Anne, Uh. uh, when she was running to shelter when there was a sudden downpour and she suffered a stroke, so she was 83. Wow. So she would have been the oldest person to ascend to the throne. Yeah. But still, we're dealing with someone who was born in 1610. That's not long after Elizabeth I was died. Exactly. This is crazy stuff. So instead, it's her son, George, who becomes king and becomes George I. George is born in 1660, so he's actually older than Anne. And he's the son of Ernst August, the Elector of Hanover, and Sophia Stuart, Electress of Hanover. And he becomes king in 1714, when he is 54 years old. Pretty, pretty old. Which is still pretty old as an accession. And his relationship to Elizabeth II, much more direct now, he is the sixth great-grandfather. She doesn't remember him, I'm sure. Probably doesn't remember him, but it's much easier to trace. That's a very direct descent now. Mm. In terms of his appearance, he's of sort of middling height, striking blue eyes, usually wore a wig, but had dark brown hair underneath it. Is that now the fashion of the time, though? Wigs very much the fashion. That's wig without an H, of course. Uh He had a well-shaped mouth... Apparently. Well-shaped. Well-shaped, with a dimpled <laughs> chin and a very long, pointed nose. Apparently he's good in profile. And he also apparently had fine hands with very long fingers. They love fingers. They, they do love their hands and fingers. Apparently because of his, uh, a lot of time spent outside when he was young, his skin was sunburnt and sort of worn by uh, the wind. So his mother, Sophia, said that he could have passed for a Spaniard. Oh, that's nice. Yes. <laughs> However, he comes to the throne in 1714, uh, but there are many challenges that he faces as king. Firstly... 
being German, he doesn't speak very much English. No. And what's more, he doesn't have much of an inclination to learn any more. Now, you stumbled on the only factor that he <laughs> yes. about George first. <laughs> Ruined it yet again. <laughs> yeah, that he is the first of the Georges, clues in the name, Yeah, and he didn't speak English. Yeah. Read on. Not much English, he does speak some, okay. but not much. What's more, Hanover was a very small but an easy-to-rule territory. He had a lot of power, decided everything. In England, it's much harder. He's got a lot mm. less power. It's a very different prospect. And colonies, of course, still. And colonies started to develop. The 1701 Act of Settlement had limited royal power, so he couldn't award peerages to Germans, couldn't declare war or change religion without the consent of Parliament. Mm. So he's not got a lot of freedom of action. What's more, Anne had refused to let the Hanoverians settle in England while she was queen. Oh, yeah, that's right. She yeah. didn't want, as she said, to be staring at her own coffin. Yeah, that's fair. But it meant that he doesn't have any roots in England, he doesn't really know people, so he hasn't got an established base which he can just start governing from. It's all new. Yeah. And also, Tories, who had been Anne's last ministry, George isn't very fond of them because they'd signed the Peace Treaty of Utrecht with Louis Fourteenth towards the end of her reign. So that was where we'd had the war of the Spanish succession. England made a peace without involving any of its allies, mm. which was great for England, but not so good for the allies, in particular Hanover. Right. So Hanover fought on for another year all by itself before making a separate treaty with France, where France recognises Hanover effectively existing and having rights to territories. OK, so he's, he's a bit bitter towards... He's quite bitter towards the Tories, and indeed, at his first court, he publicly snubs the Tory leaders. Right. So the Whigs get in, and indeed, there are 60 years of Whig rule before the Tories form another government. Wow. So it's pretty wow. much one-party state. And they, but that isn't due to any level of his power, is it? Not really, No. But it's um, just a sign of the times that their wigs mm. are in town. Yeah. Right. And also, as we sort of said, we've got the Jacobites. James III, as he's sometimes known, this was the Catholic son of James II. Yeah. Who is still alive and is still a uh, sort of fairly young man at this stage. When George acceded to the throne, there was rioting in Oxford, demonstrations in Manchester, Leeds, Somerset and Gloucester. And what's more, some of the Tory ministers who saw that their chances of being back in government were gone actually made a secret offer of the crown to James. Error. Except, unfortunately, being an obstinate Stuart, James refused to renounce his Catholicism. Yeah. He sounds quite a lot like his dad at the moment. Anyway, George is king, 1715, but the Jacobites are ready, and they mount a challenge. Despite the fact that James won't renounce his Catholicism, he does want to be king. George is not a particularly popular mm. accession among the people. They don't know who he is, he doesn't speak much English. So there's a chance for the Jacobites. Yeah. One of his allies, the Earl of Mar, gathers 7,000 uh, people in Scotland at Brymar, declares James III as king, takes Inverness, Aberdeen and Dundee, gathers sort of a large army of about 20,000. They're doing really well, looking very strong, but he hesitates to attack a smaller royal force at Stirling. Eventually they have an inconclusive battle at Sheriffur, but the English Jacobites that there are get defeated at Preston. So... They've lost the momentum, the royalist forces start to get more reinforcement. Support then tends to sort of move away from the Jacobites, people start to go off home. And it's at that point that James III finally gets to land in Scotland. Oh, timing. Held off by bad weather, unfortunately. So he lands just before Christmas. Um, Army already in defeat, and so in February he heads off home again. Wow. Home big France. Yes, indeed. (laughs) However, 1719, they have another go. Oh, this guy... 
France are no longer supporting him because when Louis XIV dies and is replaced by the young Louis XV, there's a regency government in France and they decide they'd rather just have peace with England rather than putting up this pretender. Mm. So he scuttles off in disguise to Spain, who are at war with France. Oh, ideal. So they think, ah, we'll help you then. So Spain sponsored an invasion of Scotland. In 1719, the fleet planned to land in numerous locations of Scotland, but once again, bad weather meant that the fleet gets scattered. Lots of people don't manage to land at all. Only 300 Spanish troops managed to land. But they did land in Scotland. They did land in Scotland, but the Scottish troops dispersed and the Spanish troops got taken prisoner. I th- so <coughs> in 1717? 19. 19. Yeah. Scot- um, Spanish troops landed in Scotland. Yeah. This is brand new information. Oh, well, there you go. Oh. Only, th- only 300 of them managed it. Well, so Again, well, like the Sp- I suppose in a way it was more successful than the Spanish Armada. <laughs> more yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but equally, it was a failure. Right. From that point on, James, he's 31 years old, he's had a decade of failure, he gets a little bit despondent, goes into et- uh, exile in Italy, where the Pope rather reluctantly puts him up mm-hmm. as a good Catholic, and he never makes any further attempt at restoration. But, so okay. James III, the old pretender, gives up. And he, do, do, we know, do you know how long he lived, then lives after 31? Quite a while, actually, I think. But, of course, more famously, his son, who will become known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, will take up the Jacobite cause. But not during the reign of George I. So for okay. George, 1719, the Jacobites, mm. pretty much done. Done, right. However, a more challenging person to George's peaceful rule in England is Prince George, his son. OK. We're going to get have to use, get used to this for the Hanovers. Firstly, the fact that they're all called George, mm. and secondly, the fact that they're all fighting with each other. This is going to be confusing. Father and son are always at each other's throats. We'll have to think of a way of marking these. Well, just this time he's Prince George. OK. Next time he'll be George II. <laughs> Easy. But for now, Prince George. They have a pretty bad relationship from the off, really. Um, we'll come to this later in Scandal, but um, Prince George has a thing against his father for imprisoning his mother Come and on. not letting him sing him from about the age of 11. Mm, that would cause issues. So a bit of a father-son tension already. Gets worse in 1716 when George I returns to Hanover for six months, mm. as he's wont to do. But instead of leaving Prince George as regent, he gives him a rather honorific title with no power and instead effectively leaves the politicians in charge. So his prince is allowed to go to cabinet and report back, but he's not actually officially regent. Right. Which is what used to happen. Comes to a head, however, in 1717, um, when Prince George, or rather Prince George's wife, Caroline, um, has a young child. At the christening, George I insisted that the Duke of Newcastle be the baptismal sponsor Mm. for the child. Unfortunately, Prince George hated the Duke of Newcastle, and at the christening publicly rebuked him. And due to his accent, uh, Newcastle misunderstood what he heard as a challenge to a duel. (laughs) Brilliant. So this goes on for a while until they all work it out. But even once they have worked it out, Prince George refuses to apologise. Right. And King George refuses to forgive him. So he expels the prince and his wife from St James's Palace, where he himself is residing. And his grandchildren, so Prince George's children, are to stay with the king. So, let me get this right. He has so far yeah. locked up his son's mother and then sold on his children. Yes. Right. Okay. Hey. So, again, tensions yeah. you know, between the two. And um, very sadly, um, the child actually died whilst... Oh, God, this is getting worse. ...away. Oh, no. 
And what happens as a result of this is that the prince goes off and sets up a rival court at Leicester House. So we have the king and his supporters at St James's Palace, but then the prince and his supporters at Leicester House. And although we've got the Whigs in government, there are nevertheless divisions within the party. Right. So we've got opposition politicians, in effect, with the prince doing lots of stuff, mm. and the king with his own people. So we've got, you know, two rival factions. Right, yeah. And, but they're all still Whigs. All still Whigs, right. but nevertheless, they still. are split between king and prince. Eventually, a public reconciliation is engineered by Robert Walpole between the two. Oh, this way, enter Walpole. Enter Walpole, because he's saying, you know, it's not very good when the king and his heir not only are split, but are actually splitting the politicians as well. Yeah. So he gets a public reconciliation between the two of them. They are willing to appear together in public again. But the personal relationship never really recovers. Anyway, Whigs are all powerful, and indeed the politicians are all powerful, so George doesn't really make any day-to-day decisions anymore. So mm. the country is run by the politicians and not by the king. Is this a unique thing to Britain at the time? Because we haven't had, we're not at the French Revolution yet. No, so the French monarch still has power, they although at the moment it's a regency. But George does still have some power. He still chooses who holds office. Mm. So oh, he can right. dismiss people and appoint people okay. as he wishes. He doesn't attend meetings very often because of the fact that he doesn't speak English. He can't understand what everyone's saying. So it's quite important in the beginnings of cabinet. Because we now have the mm. politicians who are governing without the king present. Yeah. Making decisions. But there are divisions. There are four leading men in this period. Stanhope and Sunderland, who were sort of these sort of junto Whigs, as we called them before. Ones that Anne didn't really like very much. Right. And they got forced, forced on her. And against them, we've got Robert Walpole and his brother-in-law, Townsend. Mm-hmm. Or Turnip Townsend, as he's known. Because right. he's an agricultural man. <laughs> Good. And... Really bad tensions between them. Apparently at some cabinet meetings they had to be restrained from throwing candlesticks at each other. Wow. God, you can imagine how much Nick Clegg wants to do that to Cameron at the moment. Exactly. 1717, Townsend was dismissed from government. He was seen as dragging his feet in negotiations with France, but he wasn't mm. sufficiently pro-Hanoverian for George's liking. Right. Townsend gets kicked out. Walpole then resigns. So Sunderland and Stanhope are now ruling the show. Because uh, so we've already had Walpole as the first prime minister here. Well, no, we haven't yet. Right. So Walpole resigns, and Townsend's dismissed, and they go off, of course, to the rival court of Prince George at Leicester House. Stanhope and Sunderland are governing, right, with okay. George first. That's where the political and the royal division right, gets linked together. So Stanhope dominated foreign affairs. Sunderland, the domestic. 1719, the Peerage Bill, um, something Sunderland introduced, he tried to limit the size of the House of Lords by basically preventing opposition peers from being created. Mm. So he's virtually saying, you can't create any more peers, it's just like that. Oh, what a surprise, those are all my supporters. Right, corrupt. But it's defeated uh, by a brilliant speech at the Commons by Robert Walpole. Mm. And then, 1720, Walpole arranges the truce between the King and between the Prince. Oh, the one where they're then seen in public. So at this point, Walpole's coming back into the fray and he returns to government. Right. So we've still got the divisions, but Walpole is back. Yeah. However, everything changes in 1720 with the South Sea Company crisis. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. As a background to this, government's national debt, we have about £50 million national debt, and a lot of financial speculation, mismanagement, 
causing lots of problems, particularly bonds being issued when interest rates are high. Mm. So the national debt's a problem and they need to try and pay it off and sort it out. The South Sea Company proposes to do so. They are a finance company with, I don't think, any particular link to the South Seas, they just call it that, made their money through the Asiento, which is the slave trade, Mm. 4,800 slaves a year that they would ship. So 96 voyages in 25 years. And also Arctic whaling. These guys are lovely, aren't they? Modern company for modern Britain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they propose to take over 31 million of the debt. So that's quite a lot of it, 31 of the 50. And what they're going to do would be exchange government securities for stock in the company. So they, in effect, bribe high-profile figures. So they give them new stock without them having to pay for it. And then they're able to sell it off quite easily for an easy profit. Right, so they're, so they're buying up national debt? Yeah. Wow. And so what they do is they really talk themselves up, extravagant rumours of the potential trade that they could be doing, particularly in the slave trade. So each the um, value of the shares in the South Sea Company rise from £128 per share in January of 1720 to £1,050 per share in June. Oh, right. So it's a few months, yeah. absolutely, the value skyrockets. And they're proposing to take over 50% of the government national debt. Uh, well, it's a bit more than that, it's about two-thirds. Yeah, 30, wow, mm. wow. But so what they're doing, so their value is skyrocketing, everyone's investing mm. in it, everyone thinks this is great, they're going to be able to pay off the debt, everything's lovely. Job done. Unfortunately, things have to be dealt with in the markets, because there's just lots of bogus speculation in companies that, pretty much don't even exist. There was one which said it would be a sort of a valuable um, endeavour, but nobody to know what it is. That's how the company describes itself. So the government decides they've got to do something about this, so we have the Bubble Act to prevent speculative uh, floating of bogus companies. The South Sea Bubble, this then becomes known as... Yes, they try and take control of it all. However, what this does is halt the rise in the market. So people start to sell Mm. and sell and sell. So the shares, which are being £1,050 per share in June, fall to 150 by September. And so thousands of people are completely ruined by this because they've put lots of money into this and suddenly the value of the shares that they've put yeah. all their money in is just wiped out Yeah. in little more than a month. So this is, um, this is the uh, dot-com bubble of the 1770s. Uh, oh, yes, yeah, 1720, indeed. Many leading figures are not only ruined by this, but also are implicated of gross fraud. Because as you said, they've been in fact bribed to take all these shares and then talk up the company, and now it's gone badly wrong. Sunderland, some of the royal family themselves are implicated. People want payback. Yeah. It's a real crisis, even fears for the fact whether the dynasty will be able to continue at this stage. James III abroad said that uh, matters seem to be very ripe in England. Wow. Okay. Because the whole economy really is in threat mm. at the moment. This has ruined everything. However, cometh the moment, cometh the man. Robert Walpole takes control. Here he goes. Manages the crisis masterfully, reschedules the debts, so it's a bit easier to work everything out and get the payments back, arranges for some compensation for people that have lost out, but at the same time manages to keep Stanhope, Sunderland and George the first free from direct implication. Because George invested himself in that. George, he's, he's sort of nominal president, but it's kind of an honorary right. thing. It's now thought that he probably didn't have lots of money invested, mm. but there's suspicion mm. at the time that he did, okay. and indeed of Prince George. So Walpole is able to manage the crisis, get the economy moving again, and keep the leading people free mm. from 
criminal prosecution. <laughs> so he's going to be rewarded. He is indeed. And this is the point at which some people say yeah. we have yeah. the first Prime Minister. Yeah. bit of background to Robert Walpole. He's the son of a middling Norfolk squire, the third of 17 children. Wow. Educated at Eton and King's College, Cambridge. So the legacy of Henry VI. Yeah. First elected to Parliament in 1701, but then he was promoted by Godolphin to the position of Secretary of War in 1708. But he refused to join Harley's Tory government towards the end of Anne's reign. And indeed, he was impeached and imprisoned in the Tower of London for six months because of his opposition. He was. But he went to a lot of public sympathy because, obviously, again, that was the Tories going way too far. Yeah, imprisoned for not joining their club. He was impeached, in effect. Right. For not joining their club. But... He's come off um, with credibility in the eyes of the public. His talents, he's got a huge appetite for food, drink, sex, money and power. I heard that he used to give speeches in the House of Commons that could last for hours. And he'd sit there with a basket of apples and just eat his way through. (laughs) (laughs) Quite possibly. He's a masterful uh, manager of the House of Commons. Fat and coarse, but he's magnetic in his personality. Very amiable man. And she said, genius to speeches, he can control the commons. Um, it was said of him that whatever he proposes seldom fails of being passed, and he was also a man whom nothing terrifies and nothing astonishes. A nice, good, fun chap. Yeah. Very good at managing Parliament, but he's a money grabber. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. But he achieves, of course, that reconciliation between George and his son, the Prince. Um, the reason that he got George to agree to it, basically, was that he provided £600,000 a year for him um, on the civil list. So he just gave him money? Yes. <laughs> So that's why George eventually agreed to it. Stanhope, one of his great rivals, died in 1721. Sunderland died in 1722. So suddenly, the two enemy rivals are mm. dead, yeah. leaving Walpole very much as the prime man. He's made Chancellor of the Exchequer and the First Lord of the Treasury. And then in 1722, he thwarts a final Jacobite plot by a man named Atterbury. So he's proving himself indispensable mm. to the government. Yeah. So some people would say he's the first Prime Minister. So, But he hasn't been given this as a title, he's just assuming lots of titles. Well, the argument in favour of saying that he is at this point Prime Minister, he's got complete control over patronage and he's a master of the House of Commons. There's a newly created Order of the Bath in 1725, which basically allows him to just give out patronage as he sees fit. Mm. Also, Order of the Garter in 1726, so he's the first commoner since 1660 to get the Garter. Right. Um, becomes known as a great man and even refuses a peerage so that he can remain in the House of Commons because he knows that that's where things are really happening. However, position isn't legally defined, so they wouldn't recognise the post of Prime Minister at this stage. It doesn't technically exist. What's more, he is in alliance with Townsend until 1730, so it's really the Walpole-Townsend administration rather than just Walpole. And so uh, the offic- the position doesn't officially exist because at the moment they're, they're, we don't really officially have parties. Well, you still got the parties. It's just we don't officially have a post of prime minister. But they're not they're not um, they're in the, their infancy themselves, mm. and uh, so the structure within them isn't there that they have one lead person from each party. No, so this so isn't the party leader. No, right. Okay, so it's just like the so the. At the moment, it's just the most powerful man in government ends up talking to the king the most. Yeah. Right. But somebody who doesn't have a lot of power is George I. So from 1722, Walpole is pretty much predominant, even if it's Walpole with Townsend or Walpole and Carteret, it's the politicians, not George. So we're we're there now. It's the end of absolute monarchy completely. We're, We're now... Exactly. Yeah. 
and George is entering his uh, his elder years. 1723, George suffers a stroke. Um, apparently he collapsed to the floor where he remained senseless for a full hour, his wig on one side and his hat on the other. Not no, very dignified. <laughs> no one moved him. It's like Stalin. <laughs> Someone's too afraid to touch him. Yeah. Um, I think probably they were just... Think it was a German joke. Maybe, or maybe they were just treating him. Who don't get my humour. <laughs> uh, but he does make a recovery from this, but health isn't quite what it was. Then 1727, he suffers another stroke in his coach when nearing Osnabrück. So he's sort of going mm. back to Hanover again. This time he doesn't recover and he dies. Poor bloke. But at no, least he dies in Germany. Like he does. That. No burial plans made for him in England, so he is in fact buried in Hanover. Wow, so is that the first king? For, that's first king or queen for a long time not to be mm, buried in Buried in England. We had a message on Facebook, David Grocott, asking about the last words of kings and whether or not they were sort of appropriate. I, I need to reply to that. that yeah, that's a brilliant idea. George I's last words were reputedly, c'est fait de moi, or I'm done. Well, that's quite, they're quite good as that last words, really. Yes, and many people have sort of suggested that in their sort of very dull, drab accuracy, it was quite uh, appropriate. <laughs> well, yeah. But, I mean, also the timing. I mean, imagine if it was two minutes late and then he needed to say something else. <laughs> yes. I'm done. You need to get that spot on. <laughs> Has anyone got some water? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's not... You see, that wouldn't quite work, would it? Not quite no. the same. But then, last words. Mm, who knows? He may yeah. well have said. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> However, that's not the end for George. Reputedly, he visited his mistress Melusine at Twickenham in the form of a raven many years later. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, nice. I wouldn't have had him down as a raven. No. To let us know which animals you think George the Persian should be. Retractorpodcast.com, Twitter, Facebook, etc. So, that is the end of George the First. Not very remarkable. Not very remarkable. We'll get a little bit more into him and what he does within the factors, because as we said, a lot of that is dominated by the politicians, but there yeah. is some stuff that George does. Okay. And that's what we're going to look at now. Let's have a look. Battleliness! So, early years um, in Hanover, when he's a prince, he does actually have some commendable um, record in the military. Oh, yes, you touched on that, yeah. 1675, when he was only 15, he showed a lot of courage and riding skills at the Battle of Consbrook, for which his father praised mm. him greatly. 1677 to 78, he was even given independent command of some troops. Right. So he's showing um, good skills at a young age. He took part in many campaigns against Louis XIV, 1675 to 78, against the Turks in Hungary, 1683-25, nearly killed fighting the French at Neerwinded in 1693, and he led troops into Holstein in 1700. And he also masterminded a successful invasion of Wolfenbüttel in 1702, wrote out the battle orders himself, right. very few troops lost. And of course, when we after the war of Spanish succession, the Hanoverians fought on for another year. Yeah, that's true. Until the French acknowledged their sort of status as a... And they were the, they were the all-powerful French at this time, weren't they? The Sun King French. Well, they had been, of course. Marlborough had oh, yeah, sorted that knocked them off that pedestal. But, you know, that's impressive stuff. Mm. Three of his brothers died in battle, so it's not that... He was, you know, nowhere near the fighting. It was, yeah, it was, it was dangerous. Right. And although George doesn't make day-to-day decisions and he doesn't really do anything domestically in England, in foreign policy he does still take a very strong role. Right. Foreign policy of Britain, George is still dictating a lot of it. Okay. He does still have some power, and for him, of course, he supported very much of Hanoverian interests because he is still elector of Hanover. This is what I was going to ask. So, do we have a situation here where it's very much like? James the First of England and the Sixth of Scotland. He is still not... ruler of both. Right. Okay. So he has to have 
different coloured paper for whichever job yes. he's doing at the time. Whatever. Yeah. So, but there's no there's no call for Hanover to be united as part of Great Britain. They're two very separate. No, so, yeah, it's, it's kept very separate. Britain really isn't interested in Hanover at all. Much, and he's not particularly interested in Britain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it is important. So people have to be show support for Hanover in order to get appointed to office under George. Right. So it's still important. Mm. And it's unpopular on a lot of people in Britain, the fact that he continues to be interested in Hanover, but it generally has a positive impact for British foreign policy. He helps to repair relationships um, with the Netherlands and also with the Habsburg countries in Austria. Thanks to his prior role in Europe and his familial ties, he's able to improve those relationships. Because after the Treaty of Utrecht, remember when England had gone off mm. on that unilateral peace, it upset its allies. Yeah. So George helps to repair the bridges there. He also sort of enters into a few wars in this period. Sort of? Sort of. No real commitment of troops, but he's a diplomatic player. Right. So there's the Great Northern War, 1700 to 21. He makes an alliance first with Peter the Great of Russia in an attempt to grab bits of the Swedish Empire. Mm. But then he sort of shifts sides every now and again. And at the end of it, Hanover does get some extra territory of Bremen and Verden from Sweden in 1719. Oh, so this is all through diplomacy? This is all through words? Pretty much through mm. diplomacy, or some sort of putting troops in places. He tries to get the British Navy to take a strong role, but they're quite reluctant mm. to commit to it. He then gets together the Triple Alliance, so he unites now with France and the United Provinces, the Dutch, against Spain. Right. Because King Philip V of Spain had been, was a relation of Louis Fourteenth. Oh, and he was, when he died, he was going to give it all to Philip? He was going to give all his power away and have no claim to the French throne. Mm. But once Louis Fourteenth dies, he changes his mind. Yeah. He decides, actually, I would quite like to have some of these territories. If not king of France, then certainly lots of these territories mm. that France has claimed to. So, George gets France and the United Provinces together, forms the Triple Alliance. Then in 1718, it becomes the Quadruple Alliance when the Holy Roman Emperor joins in the fun. Now, of course, we remember the Spanish invasion in 1719. That's King Philip V. That's why he supports the Jacobites. Oh, OK, yes. Because he's against yes. the Quadruple Alliance. So Spain, as part of this, do try to invade, mm. fail completely. Yeah. And then Britain launches a bit of a raid into Spanish territories. That... Well, hang on. We invade Spain. This is we, d- we don't invade Spain. It's more of a kind of a sortie of... Right, troops. a little skirmish. Little skirmishes is how the wars tend to be at this stage. But it indicates to Spain that actually... Maybe they're not quite as strong as they hoped they were. Yeah. So in 1720, the Treaty of the Hague, Philip of Spain relinquishes all claims to captured territories and his claim to the Italian territories that were... So he's just going to stay as... So he says, all right, you win. Okay. Leave it as it is. Mm. So that's good diplomatic manoeuvring from George. He's a big player on the European scene. And this was a lot to do with him. It was... It It was was to do with him because Britain had not exactly severed its ties, but it had lost its alliances because of the Treaty of Utrecht. And the links it had with Europe through William and Mary are no longer there, and this is this is the, the finger in the European pie is because mm. of Hanover. It's because of George, because he already had these ties with people. He, of course, had hated the Treaty of Utrecht because mm. it hurt him as well, and he's got family ties, so it is thanks to him yeah. that these alliances take place. Okay. He also attempts some reforms in the army um, in Britain. So initially he dismissed colonels who had Jacobite leanings, yeah. Just seen as quite a threat, certainly in 1715. And he aimed to remove the sale of offices, ensure that experience merited loyalty or a criteria for promotion within the army. So he wanted to personally examine all applications for new officer 
roles, as well as pushing for uniformity in drill, firearms, having annual interactions, things that like that. That is jolly good. It doesn't achieve all of these things, but it does bring the army under better control and closer inspection, so it is more efficient as an organisation than it was mm. when he came to the throne. Okay. But, for battliness, we have to acknowledge that this is a period of peace, really. Yeah. Even the wars that he gets involved in, it's not big battles, so you're sort of getting excited about us invading Spain. We don't really invade no. Spain, it's just little skirmishes. Yeah. So there's no, you know, big expansion, big victory, big battles that we had under Anne and under Marlborough, like the Battle no. of Blenheim. There's nothing really to actually say... Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's good in a way, because, I mean, war's bad, but also mm. that when you're a brand new dynasty like this, mm. to be able to pull it off and pass the, the throne on without a battle, mm. pretty impressive. And there are a couple of Jacobite uprisings which are put down quite yeah. easily. Yeah, it's more subjectivity, I think. It's more that... Mm. The, it's. I mean, there's not too much to go on here. There's no flag-waving, there's no sword or rifle held aloft. No. And a lot of it is done in Hanover for Hanover. He's thinking about Hanover at the time. Mm. Although when he becomes king, because of that Hanover link, we have treaties... Which, which benefit. Which basically. benefit, but yeah, it's not really battliness. No. Not much there. I think three. If he was given a... Um, I think if he... if he, Actually, we can't even judge this, but as an <laughs> aside, if he were to need to, I reckon he's done rather well because he's got that, yeah. that past there. But I think he, he... Maybe he averts things and the Jacobite stuff. Three. Mm. It's good for the country, but it's bad for battliness. Mm. I think he gets a three because there is some stuff there and there are those uprisings mm. which fail, but... You can't give him any more than that because no. he just doesn't have the battles. Yeah. That's a six for battliness. Scandal. Right. This is where the Georgians do do well. Yeah. Whatever else you think of them, they're good fun. Excellent. Firstly, his wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. He married a beautiful but perhaps a little empty-headed Sophia Dorothea of uh, Cell, or Chell, um, which brought an acquisition of territory, which is mm. why they went for it. Unfortunately, they had a very bad relationship. Mm-hmm. Frequent loud arguments. A George apparently was oddly formal to her a lot and scolded her for a lack of etiquette. Mm-hmm. Um, after she'd had children, George became openly unfaithful, much to her uh, displeasure. And then Sophia falls in love with a handsome and sensuous Swedish colonel of the Dragoons called Philip von Konigsmark. Right. Love letters between them get intercepted Uh-oh. by uh, George's father, and uh, Van Konigsberg is sent away, off with the army. Mm-hmm. Not in Hanover, but unfortunately he deserts his post and comes back to visit her. Right. Trouble. They both ignore urgings from family members to be discreet and, you know, not to be so public about it. They flout that, they're very open about the affair, and it becomes a matter of state because there's a fear that they're going to elope together. Why would that be a problem? Well, the, the kids, future mm. rule of Hanover's wife has eloped with some other man. Right. It's bad form. Bad form, yeah. So, true. they do what anyone would do. They hire an assassin, Don Niccolo Montalbano, who has paid 150,000 thalers, or talers, to kill von Konigsmark. And that is apparently about 100 times the annual salary of the highest paid minister in Hanover. Wow. That's a lot. Wow, yeah. So he was making his way to Sophia's room one night when he gets ambushed, strangled, and his body dumped in the river. He's not a very subtle assassin. I was expecting something, a, a shot from three miles away, and he's already in France by the time they hear it. <laughs> so they bundle him down the stairs or something. Well, yeah. It's not in public during the day, I think. You know, it's well, at night when no one's okay. around. 
Sophia, because it being so public, they can't just hush it up. Everyone knows about it. Mm. So there is a trial and a divorce. Right. So she is divorced from George and placed under house arrest at Castle Alden for the rest of her life. And he, she can't see the young prince. And can't daughter. see the young prince or a daughter. So that's another 32 years I before mean, she dies that she's imprisoned. I, I, George is not coming across well here. I mean, mm. he was openly hostile to her. Yeah. She fell in love. And, and having an affair. Yeah, and oh dear, oh dear. And he forbade mourning in Hanover and London when she died. Wow, that's harsh. And um, of course, as you said, permanently soured relationship with his son. Mm, he's really cold. In his defence, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's debatable to what extent he was actually aware of the murder, because this is still the period when his father is alive, so it may well be that the people in control took control. Also, um, Sophia was given a comfortable income and servant. She was able to, you know, trot around on a horse. Oh, lucky girl. Lucky, lucky lady. But, you know, it's not yeah. that she was... Behind bars. Behind bars yeah. as such. Of course, we remember that Henry II had imprisoned Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes. As well. So it's not an unprecedented thing for... Yeah, we like him. Kings to do. Yes, we <laughs> like him. <laughs> um, and also, the letters that were intercepted reveal um, Sophia expressing very openly her desire that George would be killed in battle as well as making very unfavourable comparisons between him and her lover. Which, right. you know, wouldn't have been pleasant things for a husband to read. No, I mean, and a hundred years earlier would have been head-off job. Well, yes, very much so. So, you know, she keeps her head. Mm. Well, yeah. But George has mistresses of his own. Yeah. First of all, Melusine. Or, to give her her full name, Erengard Melusine Baroness von der Schulenberg, the Duchess of Kendal and the Duchess of Munster. Right. This is George's main mistress from Hanover, so he brought her over to England. Duchess of Munster, Ireland. She was made Duchess of Munster when she came over and Kendall. Treated as his wife. Unfortunately, in English law, you couldn't remarry while your first wife was still alive. Really? So he wasn't allowed to marry. Otherwise, he probably would have done. Yeah. But she was pretty much treated as queen. Very skinny woman, so she was nicknamed the Maypole. Mm. And uh, he spent... Uh, many of his evenings together with her, cutting out paper patterns with scissors. No telly. No telly in those days. There's also Sophia Charlotte, or to give her her full name, Sophia Charlotte von Kilmenseg, Countess of Darlington and the Countess of Leinster. Now, she was George's half-sister. No way. So there's a lot of scandalous gossip about them being no. lovers. However, no one in the royal circle ever suggested that there was an improper relationship between them. So it Can might, they get banged up? It might just have been baseless rumour. So what's, what evidence do we have here? that they, When he'd finished with the other lover... Well, I mean, they were both came over with him from Hanover and he spent a lot of time with them both. Oh, uh, OK. Right, maybe that's... But it maybe. might just have been yeah. gossip. Um, she was a very stout woman... Um, Horace Walpole um, recalled as a young child being terrified at her enormous figure. <laughs> two fierce black eyes, large and rolling beneath two lofty arched eyebrows, two acres of cheeks spread with crimson, an ocean of neck that overflowed and was not distinguished from the lower part of her body, and no part restrained by stays or corsets. She sounds a look at work. She was nicknamed the Elephant. <laughs> Perhaps rather cruelly. Yeah. And indeed, newspapers um, said that. His mistresses were ugly old whores who would have found few clients in the brothels of Jewry Lane. So he had a type. Indeed, and Lord Chesterfield claimed that no woman was amiss to George if she was but very willing, very fat, and had great breasts, and that to become his mistress, women had to strain and swell to put on weight. Some succeeded, and others burst. 
Oh, yeah, that's looking good for Plump George. mistresses. There are also some Turkish men at his court who cause some gossip as well. Oh, really? He had two male Turkish servants, Mustafa and Mohammed, who were captured in campaign against the Turks in the relief of Vienna mm. in the 1680s. So there were some rumours that they were kept for his personal base usage. Who's, who's suggesting this? Well, this is the, uh, the gutter press, oh. <laughs> if you will. Okay. The satirists of the day. In reality, there's no real suggestion that they were actually his lovers. Yeah. Because now we are in the age of free press, because William came mm. along and uh, freed them up. But um, these these now in full swing. We've got the cartoon. Mm. The Very well. much in full swing, yeah. So this is going to be great for scandal oh, in the yes. future. In reality, they were responsible for menial tasks such as warming his shirts, controlling access to him. 1717, apparently George was showing uh, signs of hemorrhoids, so they were responsible for caring for him and keeping it secret, which might have been part of the reason why right. it's yeah. in the secret and hushed up and what they're doing in the room together. Mm. Thankfully for George, the examination showed that he didn't have hemorrhoids, but he did have to try and avoid saddles where possible. Oh, right. Okay. There on. We also, and this isn't exactly scandalous, but it's a sign of you know the colourful characters that we now have at court. Peter the Wild Boy. I've heard about him. Mm. Is he the guy they found in the forest? He is indeed. Yeah. Grew up near Hanover, uh, but in a nearby wild wood. So he was discovered wandering in 1725 and captured. Mm. He was about 12 years old, curly hair, but he'd had no human contact since infancy and couldn't speak any language. Mm. And everyone was absolutely fascinated by him. Mm. And these sort of enlightenment questions of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a soul? Are we different from animals? Yeah. Etc. Um, apparently, when he was introduced to George's court in England, he shocked the court by scuttling along the floor in his arms, failed to bow to the Lord Cham- uh, Chamberlain, <laughs> and went straight to the king. Really? Imagine. Imagine, yeah. George was fascinated by him, however, and made him part of his household. He, that would be fascinating, though. Like, no mm. language. To, he, he, and he couldn't pick up language, No. No, no. Yeah. they tried to teach him, but they couldn't. And this is a period where we've got ridiculous court customs, so you had to bow three times to a vacant throne, a reverence bow to the king, um, ladies couldn't leave p- without permission, had to perform three curtsies, etc. In contrast, Peter prefers to go about naked, Yeah, uh, doesn't really have any understanding of what beds are for, no. sits whenever he feels like it, despite the fact that there aren't any chairs in the drawing rooms. He's not. He's all over the place, this boy. Struggles a bit, though, never really likes clothes. It's sort of chasing him a bit. When he first saw someone undressing, he thought they were tearing off their skin. Oh, he, right, OK. Of course, because he never seen yeah. clothes before, so he thought that's just what they were. Took to pickpocketing, in a fairly innocent way, yeah. but um, gets beat, beaten as a result. So it's like the court jester here. It's kind just, of. Yeah. And so it's fun when he's entertaining, but then when he doesn't play mm. along with what the etiquette that they want him to fulfil is... He doesn't do quite so well. He'd only eat green things at dinner, so then he'd throw meat about when he got brought to George's table. So eventually George got exasperated and just said, give him what he wants. Yeah, because he'd been surviving in the forest. Yeah, he just liked forest stuff. Um, So his later life, you know, he starts to pine for the forest, but thankfully he was put into the kind care of Dr Arbuthnot, who was the man who invented John Bull. Yeah, this is where I've heard of him from. And uh, lived on quietly into the 1780s, where apparently he resembled a bust of Socrates, you know, his great big beard, those Greek statues Mm. that you have. Mm. Right. Anyway, that's not particularly scandalous, but... No, it's an interesting... Adds colour yeah. to the court. So, scandal, we've got, you know, imprisoning his wife in this a castle good, for actually. her whole life, killing off her lover, not letting the children see her, his yeah. big fat mistresses. Yeah, but I thought he had to stay away from saddles. Oh. Um, it's good, it's good. There's no... 
It's and not it, Beckett. And it, it's not Beckett, but it is scandalous at the time. So when he comes to England, he is already seen as quite scandalous for all of this stuff. So it is scandalous there and there. Yeah. We're not just inventing it. And it's the best scandal we've seen for a while. Um, it's, it's pretty good, but as you say, it doesn't, it's not... This is a, stuff, this is a very decent. nice, decent, standard bit of scandal. Good, it's solid scandal. Yeah, five. <laughs> um, I think I'll give him a six. Okay. For the, uh, I think imprisoning your wife. Yeah, all of a lot yeah, of stuff yeah. that deserves a little bit. We've got death and um, well, we've got murder and and sex and um, and a little bonus Peter Wildboy. Exactly, so that's good. Yeah, so that's eleven for scandal. Not too bad. Not too bad. Subjectivity. There is some good stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a constitutional monarch. To an extent, he's limited by powers, of course, but he had had pretty much autocratic rule in Hanover. And at 54 years old, he's, you know, it's effectively an old dog learning new tricks. Yeah. And he does it pretty well. He's very conscious of his, what his prerogative is, and he always makes sure that he doesn't exceed it too much. And if you compare that to William III, who was just trying to do whatever he wanted, yeah. clashing all the time, he's a much more constitutional ruler. Yeah, I suppose that William had the, um, was in the process of the rules being set. Mm. And this guy is, is, has a framework to work in. Mm. But he does work within that framework. Yeah. And there is still a balance. Neither George or the politicians have outright power. And as you say, we don't yet have very firmly established positions like Prime Minister, mm. like a cabinet with collective responsibility. It is still in a genesis at the moment. And Walpole himself acknowledged nobody can carry on the king's business if he's not supported at court. So George can still appoint and dismiss people yeah. if he wants to. So he does still have some influence. And he is the first Hanover, of course. He establishes a new dynasty. It's easy with hindsight to say, well, of course, there's no power at this stage. It's the point of politicians, etc. But we do still have the Jacobites yeah. trying to rebel. We do still have war and diplomacy. So, you know, it's not an easy task to no, establish no, a dynasty. It can go wrong, but he does it successfully. Yeah. He's also a man of tolerance. Supports the repeal of Occasional Conformity and Schism Acts in 1719, um, which is honouring a promise he made to protect all Protestants. So these are things which are going attacking dissenters, basically. People who weren't Church of England, Anglican Protestants. And he's okay. trying to... So he's, he's taking a leaf out of um, Charles's book there. So, he's, so yeah. he's tolerating Catholics now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, it's more, yeah, it's dissenters, Protestant dissenters rather than... Oh, Catholics I see, still. yeah. Okay, Although yeah. He, he would have been happy to repeal the Test Acts, which put very strong restrictions on mm. roles and offices for Catholics. Dissenters here are like Quakers, they're... They're Protestants who yeah. aren't TV, right? Um, so he would have been happy to repeal the tax acts. Unfortunately, his ministers made it clear that they wouldn't pass mm. any such measure. So he's more tolerant than the politicians. 1718, he tried to procure uh, the rights to worship without um, fear of losing office, etc., for dissenters. Uh, but it failed because, A, the ministers weren't very keen on it, and, B, they linked it to that failed peerage bill. Right. So when that failed, yeah. this bill failed at will. However, he is trying for Jews. Um, individuals could apply for naturalisation um, by submitting a private act to Parliament. Very long and costly process, not available to most. But again, you know, George is trying to okay. introduce something they can while, do. Isn't it? Mm. That's, yeah. And then 1715 uprising uh, in Scotland. George did try to moderate the government response in the aftermath to it. Apparently, he spent the income from forfeited estates in Scotland on schools in Scotland, and also paying off some of the national debt. Excellent. Yeah, he's trying yeah. to do some good things. A big thing that we can thank George for is the introduction to England of George Friedrich Handel. 
Oh, cool, yeah. Classical yeah. composer. Had been Kapellmeister at Herrenhausen, which is George's um, mansion in Hanover. George had a genuine love of music, and he, you know, brings Handel to England with him and sponsors him. Mm. Handel's famous water music was specially composed for a journey from London to Hampton Court with his great water party at Chelsea. Apparently George liked it so much that he had it played three times in a row. It is good. It's a, it's a classic. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, yeah, so, so he... <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, he, you know, it's um, 1727 when Handel uh, has naturalisation and becomes British. Yeah. So George, very important for bringing him across, and this has a major impact on classical music in Britain mm. and the way that that develops. And Handel's huge influence on people like Mozart and Beethoven and Bach, people that come afterwards. So we just claimed him? We claim him, but we naturalise him. Okay, we make him English. But George, George is the king, Handel comes over, and Handel becomes British as well. So that's a good thing. Yeah. George is also a man of the Enlightenment. Took a strong interest in inoculation, which is developing, of course, mm. against diseases, etc. Insisted that all of his daughters were inoculated against smallpox. Who's that? Jenna? Jennings? Ooh, might have been. Can't remember. Yeah. Good fact. Also planned for a university at Gottingen, founded the Regius Professorships in Modern History at Oxbridge, where we have sort of training for diplomats, and he doubled the stock of Cambridge's library. Wow. Wow, which it's now famous for. Indeed. Um, also Irish Catholics um, got a little bit of help from George at one stage, because there was a bill put before the Irish Parliament um, decreeing that Catholic priests who were caught proselytising, or just you know, promoting Catholicism, would be castrated. In, so Catholic priests in Ireland would be castrated if they preached or Catholicism. This is the Irish Parliament, of course, is Protestant. Right. George, however, insisted that it was dropped, partly because it was offensive to their Catholic allies, and in any case, it was ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> and he wins the respect of Voltaire, a man we've mentioned oh, yeah? a couple of times before, because of his support for dissenters. In 1726, when Voltaire's exile from Paris, he uh, provided refuge for him in England. Oh, right. And so he's bringing, he's importing all this great talent. Exactly. And as we said, you know, he permits public critics without severe censorship. Lots of horrible things are written about him and his ministers, but you know, mm. he doesn't do anything mm. to uh, stop it. So it's positive stuff. Yeah. And there's also some good cultural thing that comes out of the rivalry for the Prince George. So when they have their separate courts, they're trying to attract people to the court. So they both are trying to make their court much more magnificent than the other one. Mm. So it's thanks to this that George refurbishes Kensington Palace, and it, that's why it is now this sort of magnificent 18th century. Oh, yeah. So the beautiful decoration. Yeah. He also had a menagerie with lions. There was a snailery. Whoa, wow, take the kids out. And a place for breeding tortoises. That's this. This is slow work. I mean, this is I mean, this is George Olave. He's just got the wrong end of the stick. He doesn't yeah. quite know how to party. He knows the principles, but he builds a snailery or whatever it was. Yeah, I love that. He's got a lion and then a snailery. Yeah, and a place for and breeding tortoises. tortoises. Crikey! He probably wasn't too fond of the lion, but no, not someone insisted. So. so there's some good things there, but as ever, there's some not so good. Mm. Firstly, to pick up where we left off there with culture, he doesn't actually build any new palaces in this period. Right. Just refurbishes old ones, and apparently he spent more on horses in his reign than he did on theatre, music, and writers combined. Right. So it shows where his priorities... He was very much um, the... uh, David Cameron in his day, he was bringing over Handel and Voltaire (laughs) and expecting the big society to do all that. Take care of itself. And, of course, this is the big problem for George and his unpopularity. He is German. Yeah, 
Not that there's anything wrong with being German, of course, but he's a foreigner, mm. and he doesn't really manage to get over that. Mm. In terms of language, he only ever learns a smattering of English, so Walpole claimed that he had to govern the kingdom by the means of bad Latin. Oh, they really? couldn't speak to each oh. other in English, and Walpole didn't speak French, mm. which George did. So they always had to have an interpreter present in their meetings. They couldn't just have the two of them alone. Well, I wonder how much was lost. And in fact, whenever uh, George had to read a uh, speech to Parliament, he would just read the first sentence and then hand it over to the Lord Chancellor to read the rest of it. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it's like his signature at the start. Yes. And of course, the speech, the first sentence, wouldn't really vary very much. It was just depending on whether he was opening or closing Parliament. Yeah, yeah. And then in Anglican sermons, you can't understand what everyone's saying. And unfortunately, the Dean of Salisbury spoke into German, so George took up the habit of just chatting to the Dean of Salisbury throughout the sermons rather than <laughs> listening to what everyone was saying. And it got so bad that um, they decided that they would ban the Dean of Salisbury from the palace and they told George that he'd been killed by an accidental kick from a horse. And never seen again? No, well, almost never seen again. George found it very um, sad when this happened, but he was amazed a few years later when he saw him live and well living in Salisbury. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. George's personality, as we've touched on, not very sympathetic in many ways. No. It's quite a shy and dull personality, very withdrawn. His mother had to explain to people that although he seemed cold and severe, he could be amiable and sensitive among friends. Mm. But in public, people never see this. Lord Chesterfield described him as an honest, dull German gentleman, as unfit as unwilling to act the part of a king. His meals are served in his apartments privately rather than in state, as you know, as a public thing. So mm. he doesn't like to be out in public, rarely seen, and even then only in London and the surviving, uh, surrounding Umbron. Avoided the royal box at the opera, tried to travel incognito when he went off to play cards with friends. So, you know, he's not a majestic king mm. full of glory and majesty. He's trying to keep himself out of the limelight, doesn't want to be seen. Why is that, do you think? Was it because he, he was. There was the. Um It'd be too much of an imposition, because he's a German coming over, it'd feel like a conquering German or... I don't think it was so much of that as he just didn't really like it. It's mm. One time when he had to endure lots of public audiences in one day, he said, I may well look ill, for I have had a world of blood drawn from me today. Right. And he likes his quiet little Hanover. Yeah. That's where he was happiest, and indeed, he returned in 1716, 1719, 1720, 1723, and uh, 1725. And, of course, died there in 1727. So he spent about a fifth of his reign. Yeah. Oh, so I mean, it's a bit of bit of Richard the Lionheart then. No, well, except no. the Richard Lionheart was off campaigning, yes, fighting, so whereas George is just it. going home, thinking, "Oh, finally." Yeah. yeah. And what's more, we've got unpleasantness. We've got imprisoning his wife in the castle for the rest of her life, removing the grandchildren from his mm. son's household. In the seventeen fifteen rebellion, um, there were a number of Scottish nobles who were condemned to death for their part, which you know is as you'd expect. Lady Nisdale, um, her husband was condemned to death, and she managed to get access to George, and she begged him um, to pardon her husband, but apparently he just threw her to the floor, walked out. Said nothing. Right. No, yeah. I don't really click with his character, this chap. A nice um, twist in that story was that Lord Nisdale did in fact make a dramatic escape from the Tower of London, hey. dressed as a woman. <laughs> and when George was informed about this, he said, it is the best thing that a man in his situation could have done. Yeah. Which is true. Yeah, well, definitely. Escaping is definitely the best thing you could have done. Um, but I think that might be the weak point in the Tower of London's uh, defences there. Everyone seems to escape as dressed as a woman. Mm. The guards just must fall <laughs> for a really ugly lady. 
Well, you know the state of George's mistresses, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's, all quite, it's, probably, it's probably the king's mistress, let her go. Yeah. So, we had some positive things, the Enlightenment, Handel, Constitution Monarchy, but... Yeah, Constitution Monarchy, he was working within limits that were there. Mm. It's good that he worked within them, but it'd be a negative if he didn't. Yeah. It's not good. And, uh, you know, really, think, I mean, we said about his being German, he doesn't really want to be here. And the people don't really want him to be there either. No, so he's a, he's a very unpopular. But guy. he keeps peace. I think I think it's just a, it's it's a dull reign mm. with nothing very exciting. It's probably a safe time to bring up a family or something. Yeah. You could be fairly secure. Yes, I mean it's a prosperous period of peace and prosperity. You know, it's pretty yeah. good apart from the South Sea bubble crisis, of course. Oh yeah. Although yeah. Walpole does resolve that. Four, three, three point five, three point mm. five. It's tricky because you think it's it's certainly not a bad period to be no, a subject, yeah, and you know, would you want to be a subject? Well, it's you know, it's not a bad time. Yeah, but it's not a fun time. It's not. F- that's it. You're right. It's a good. Yeah, exactly. It's just not fun. I'm going to give him a five. I think just a solid, plain, boring. It's it's decent enough, but well, actually, yeah, no, no, we, I'm not. I am adjusting up, <laughs> but we never discussed these scores beforehand. But it's just to me like the bog standard scandal. Five is is a good score. Subjectivity is fine. Mm. I'll go with a four because I just because I just don't like him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is fair enough. Nine in total then for subjectivity. Longevity. He rules from seventeen fourteen to seventeen twenty seven, which is twelve point seven five years. Oh, it's less than I thought. So twelve point seven five. We type that in. Gives a score of four point zero one on the thingy scale. On the thingy scale, on the patty scale. Pa- on the patty scale, sorry, patty. So it's not a very high score, but... No, no. Um, dynasty, not the programme. George has two children, legitimate ones. Both um, called George? Well, the first one's called George, and the second one is called Sophia. Right. She has a daughter. So one becomes George II, the other one um, is the mother of Frederick the Great, King Frederick II oh, of yeah. Prussia, this great Enlightenment yeah. king that comes along later. So, you know, notable mm. children. That's only two... Which gives a score of three point three four for Dynasty. Mm. So in total, George gets thirty three point three five. Where does that put him overall? Well, it's not very high, but you know, it's not also very low. It's it's sort of middling, really. Yeah. This it's, is George. This is very George. Mm. Very very yeah. George. And he'd be happy with that. <laughs> yeah, I think if he if he, if he was told at the start, just. Just muddle through and you'll get and you'll be fine. He'd go, yeah. f- he'd go all right. That'll be a pass. Yeah, exactly. And everyone will go, ah, oh, right. Who's next? And it'd be another George. Exactly. <laughs> but maybe that uh, drab mediocrity <laughs> will be the spectacular achievement and long-lasting legacy and greatness and star quality, which we call Rex Factor. I mean, str- I know we're going to discuss it, but no. No, I mean, all, I mean, it's a struggle, really, to think yeah. of reasons. All I can think of in his favour is that he does establish a new dynasty successfully. Yeah. And it's a very long-lasting one. Yeah. He brings Handel to England. Yeah. Although he was kind of there under Anne, but he's the one that establishes Handel, and he has some fun scandal. Yeah. Otherwise... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Meh. Pretty dull, pretty drab. You told me um, in the week that there is only one... Uh, biography on George yes there. and I can kind of see why I reckon probably a lot was started and there's a lot of foreign policy in that biography as mm. well mm. bad luck George so it's a no for me a no from you as no well me, yes yeah, yeah. that's a no for George he does not have the Rex factor no way 
But to be fair, I imagine that probably the big fanfare and stuff would all have been a bit much to him. There'd have been a ceremony to go to and, you know, all sorts of things. He's he's better off, quietly. Just plodding on. As a raven in the afterlife. Mm. Well, I don't think raven. But yeah, let us know which animals, but not raven. Definitely not raven. Well, I think the snail or the tortoise probably is much Very good, tortoise, yeah. So that is it for George I. He doesn't have the wreck factor, but will his son, George II, prove more successful? Let's see. Find out next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.